It could be very natural at this time of the retreat, where four or five, however many days in, though it, sometimes it seems like we've been here forever, doesn't it? The beginning is a, seems like it's a long way in ancient history. It can be really natural to um, try to evaluate the retreat. I've got some advice for you. <laughs> Don't. I know it's inevitable. It's not like you've started now. You probably started, you know, as soon as you walked in the door. How am I doing? Am I looking good? Did I bring the right clothes? You know, is this the right retreat? Um, Should I really be here? Should I be doing this practice, not that? It's a tendency of mind we have. And it's actually so debilitating. And in this context, uh, where we are right now in the retreat, I was going to say irrelevant, but it actually can be not harmful, but really disruptive of our practice. Because the truth is, we can't know. We really can't know where we are in this practice. It's so mysterious. And this metta practice works on so many levels. And for each of us, we're bringing our own unique combination of qualities and interests and conditioning and experience to it. And finding within the practice that different aspects will appeal to each person, the different categories, one or the other. A number of people today really connected with the neutral person or had openings with the difficult person or connecting with the other Brahma-viharas. Maybe it was compassion that really opened your heart. So we need to recognize that there's something quite powerful and mysterious going on here and we don't actually know what it is yet. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever know, but certainly in the middle of a retreat, we might have openings or insights or whatever, but the real big picture will only actually be be revealed over time. And when we go home from the retreat, as we return to our, quote, normal life, um, we'll feel perhaps the effects of this retreat. But really in it, it's it's still very much in process and very much uh, alive. So really, just a recommendation not to, as much as possible, if you notice those thoughts coming up, and and we can compare or evaluate between today and yesterday, today and the projection of tomorrow, what we thought should happen, what happened on the last retreat, and then, of course, we compare and project to other people's retreats. And who knows what, we barely know what we're experiencing. How can we know what someone else is experiencing and actually judge it? So as much as possible, please let it go if you can. And really look at what is being offered here, what you are opening to and learning. I think I may have said this already. It's always hard to remember what I said in the talk or in the groups or individually, so some I may have said before. But one of the things I love about metta is the fact that it works on on these different levels, and so each of us finds a way in that actually speaks to us, works for us. But the two main ways that metta works as a practice is developing the metta feeling and deepening concentration. And the good thing is, I call it a two-for-one package. You know, you, you can get both of them developing, which is wonderful. But often, and for most people, one tends to develop more than the other. And you can just take um, refuge in that or appreciate that. If the metta isn't really flowing or you have some idea of what it should feel like and it's not feeling like that, but you're fairly steady with the phrases, then really trust, appreciate, uh, get some um, energy from the fact you're developing your concentration. 
And if the concentration isn't strong, if you don't feel you're really consistent with the phrases, but you've had some beautiful heart openings, then the practice is working. It can work in any of these two main ways, and we can actually have a really powerful and helpful retreat. So just to also hold it in this big way, there's no right way for this retreat to unfold. We'll all have different aspects working at different times. I know for me, when I first contemplated doing a meta retreat at that time, this is back in the 90s, there weren't, as far as I remember, uh, retreats like this. You know, with meta practice was just becoming popular, and the only way you could do it was to go on a long retreat. I went to the um, three-month retreat at IMS and did six weeks of metta in a Vipassana retreat, just got my instructions individually. But as I was contemplating doing that, well, I should first say I didn't contemplate doing it. My first response was, why on earth would I want to do that? You know, why would I want to live in what seemed to me like a Hallmark card, you know, where you're just saying, may everything get better and better in every way, every day, and go around with this sort of flowery sense of happiness and a goofy smile on your face? That wasn't what I was looking for from practice, not me. Um, but as I sat with that, sat with that response and heard other people's experiences, I realized that what was at the heart of that was fear, that I didn't feel that I could do this practice didn't feel that I could love, didn't feel that I knew what metta was. And once I tapped into that, I realized, of course, that I had to do this practice. It was probably what I most needed. And went on this retreat with a lot of trepidation, six weeks of metta practice, not having any idea of what that would be like. And it began okay, you know, but after a few days, I started evaluating. You know, it wasn't what I thought it should be, and it especially wasn't what I thought the teachers thought it should be for me. And that was a really difficult one. And I would go in and report, you know, it's going okay, I'm feeling kind of warm, a little friendly, it's kind of nice. And they'd go, okay, okay, you know, keep going. But I'd go out, and I, I'm sure they think I'm hopeless. I'm sure they think I'm a failure. Because I'm not feeling this ecstatic metta that you're meant to feel. You know, I had this idea of what it should be. It should be transformative and boundless and unconditional. And after one interview, and this was about two weeks in, I came out with those feelings just in spades. I just thought I was hopeless and all the, all the thoughts that you can have about that. I won't go into that whole drama. But what saved me was I just realized I had to accept my practice for what it was. It wasn't a lot of bells and whistles. It wasn't, you know, this exalted ex feeling of metta, of golden light and bliss or anything. It was just a kind of warmth and friendliness. But I did know that I was deepening my concentration. I could feel the effects of that. The phrases were very steady. There was a lot of energy around the practice. And that was kind of my support to, be, to help me continue in the practice. Because of that willingness to accept where my practice was, who I was in relationship to the metta practice, I was, a, I was ready to leave. You know, I'm sure you've had those moments too, just pack. But I had nowhere to go. I was in Massachusetts. I couldn't go anywhere. You know, I'd look at the planes going overhead and go, where, where are they going? Even the school bus looked tempting. You know, get on the school bus and get out of here. But I couldn't go anywhere, so I stuck it out. And from that willingness to just accept my practice, it deepened. And again, I can't say it was, you know, it moved immediately into that state that I thought it should, but it deepened enough that the retreat was very powerful and profound for me. So again, you just 
to just accept where you are and not try to evaluate or judge. It's the steadiness and the commitment and the kindness that's so helpful. And of course, it is great when both the metta and the concentration develop together. You know, they're never, I think, completely equal, but there are times when they both get in sync and they really do support each other. But for most of us, as I said, there's usually one or the other that's stronger and we can just appreciate that. And to really recognize that this practice takes time. As long as this retreat might seem, you've probably got a sense of what it would be like to really spend some quality time with each of these categories and deepen into it. Weeks or months could be spent on this practice and and really be time well spent. But what I do want to talk tonight is some of the experiences and the insights and the attitudes that can develop when the practice does tend to deepen, both the metta feeling and the concentration, and how to work skillfully with those. But don't use this talk to evaluate you know, no one is going to have every aspect of what I'm talking about. It's, it's going to try and speak to different parts of your experience, and you'll all have t- touched one aspect or another, but it's not, you know, it's not going to come together for everyone, especially just in a week. But just to kind of broaden the view of, of how to work with this practice when it starts to deepen, as it can do by this time of a retreat. So really important to hold what I'm saying with the attitude of metta itself. Just to acceptance, kindness, wherever you are, take what's useful and let uh, go what's, what's not so helpful for you what, you, what you don't relate to or connect with. So you've probably realized by now, if you've done some Vipassana practice, how different metta is from that practice. In Vipassana or mindfulness, this is very simple instructions, notice what's happening. Be with your experience in the moment as it is with as little filtering and layers as possible. Come into this direct contact with your experience and know it as it is, moment after moment. The breath, the body, thoughts, feelings, emotions. Again and again, letting go. Seeing the impermanence of experience. Seeing the impersonal nature of it. Well, we've kind of changed the rules on you, haven't we? Here, metta is an intentional practice where we're saying there's this kind of experience that's really helpful to have. There are these kinds of thoughts that are really helpful to have. Incline the mind towards those experiences, those kinds of thoughts that will develop this kind of metta that we're we're cultivating on this retreat. And so it's really being very um, preferential about our experience. Instead of being impartial, we're preferring certain kinds of thoughts, certain kinds of feelings over other kinds of feelings. It's really choose this thought, not that. And as soon as I wrote that line, I realized it reminded me of that. There's a bestseller book, Eat This, Not That. I thought someone should write a book, Choose This Thought, Not That Thought. And that would be much more to people's speak much more to people's level of well-being than what they eat because it would affect every part of their experience. But choose this thought, not that thought. It's kind of a radical concept. We're used to just letting things arise and pass and being kind of impartial. But there's a really important training that's happening with this. It's the training of wise attention, Yonasomanasikara, where the Buddha talked about again and again where we we give... um, 
prominence to or priority to, preference to, these aspects of our experience that we know uh, lead to happiness, we know lead to well-being, we know reduce suffering, or lead to clear seeing, lead to insight. This is wise attention, giving this kind of preference. But we give this kind of preference, we do evaluate, but without judging or aversion, without holding on or attaching, we use this wise attention to know clearly and very simply and directly what supports the metta feeling and metta practice and what's going to be disruptive or take us away from developing that feeling. So we do this with our thoughts. I think one of us spoke about the two kinds of thoughts that the Buddha explored before his enlightenment, putting his thoughts into two categories. This is what we're doing over and over again. We're preferring the thoughts of metta. This is a really valid and powerful training. And we use the practice of not now, not now, to the other kinds of thoughts, the thoughts of past or future, distraction, of wanting, of not wanting. We don't reject them. We don't criticize ourselves for having them. But just simply this practice of not now, not now. And it's such a simple thing to say, but if we can actually do it, sometimes I really just, like energetically, I give myself that gesture. It's like a turning away and a not now. It's not a rejecting. It's not a, a hitting out ad or smothering, but just a gentle not preferring. So we say not now to these other, pra- these other thoughts or distractions. So again, we, in, in this practice, in this um, intentional practice of metta, we, do, we make these preferences and we learn to do it skillfully. We learn to take the energy away from attitudes or emotions or thoughts or feelings that aren't conducive to the metta and gently place it back again and again and again to this intention towards metta. We can't create a feeling of metta, this intention towards metta, this intention of kindness. Now, this is the beginning of this practice to learn to do this really skillfully with kindness, with metta, this turning from this kind of thought, this kind of feeling, to that kind of feeling. A great skill to bring to our practice. So in doing this, we learn a lot about the art of meditation. And I I hope you will find that this practice of metta, especially if it's new for you, will really reveal a lot to you about wise effort and give you techniques and tools that you can bring back to your vipassana practice. I know I found that. Because you really see as soon as you set up an intentional practice, as soon as you have a goal, that it's easy to get into striving, to get into judging, to get into being very rigid in the mind. And it's not about that. It really is learning to do this skillfully with gentleness and with acceptance. Some of the other things that I want to talk about tonight that we learn through this wise attention, through this intentional practice, this preferring, are the skillful use of pleasure. This practice has a potential and often is a very pleasant practice. How to develop that without attachment, how to use that pleasure in a skillful way. The, the skillful use of thought, already talked about a little, I'll say some more. The skillful use of energy that comes. And also the deepening of concentration and how to work skillfully with that. So I really want to talk about 
the possibilities of this practice. It may not be things you've experienced yet, but just a kind of roadmap to how this practice can develop if we have enough time when the conditions are right and conducive. Because I think it's James that often says, wherever we are in our practice, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. We're just beginning. As, as long as I've been practicing, I feel that every time. There's just this possibility that's there. The more that I know, the more I know there is to know. And just to have that feeling, it's not like you should be anywhere else than where you are. But wherever you are, it's the tip of the iceberg, the beginning of a journey. And we're all at different relationships to that journey, all each on our own journey. So important to be wherever you are. So again, one of the things that this practice can teach us is the wise use of thought. The very basis of the practice is the wise use of thought, replacing our usual judging and critical and commenting kind of thinking with these phrases of metta or compassion or mudita or whatever. That's the first example of the wise use of thought. But it also invites us, this practice invites us to do what we call reflective meditation. And we've been encouraging you over the days to include this in your practice where you actually use thought to come to a deeper understanding, even if it's just of what happiness means. What is joy? What is true compassion? What is the nature of envy or contraction of the heart? In wise reflection or using uh, reflective meditations, we really need to distinguish between just thinking about something. That's not reflection. It really is this, we have this engaged engaged quality or engaged relationship with whatever it is we're contemplating. And it feels very alive. Someone talked about it in one of the interviews. He said he knows because his heart is kind of alive in, in the process that he's in of, of reflecting on the experience or whatever it is he's contemplating. It's very present moment oriented. There's a connection to the body. So again, it's not just intellectual. And there's usually some sense of some freshness, something being revealed. You know, it might be huge insights. It's just a kind of deepening or more connecting or more understanding. Sometimes there can be these aha moments where we really see something. But the important thing is not to get lost in this. I'm always a little wary about talking about this because people can take it as permission just to go on flights of fancy. It's not about that. It really is a practice. It's a meditative practice of staying very centered and just, say, having this inquiry into what does safety mean for me? And a lot of it is responding on an energetic level. It's not with words at all. It's it's more intuition or feeling. But this is something that the metta practice can really open us to, this, this kind of inquiry, whether it's on a personal level about our own history and conditioning, and we kind of see the patterns that have arisen in our relationships with ourselves or with others, or around the judging mind or a fear or whatever. And so the mind just naturally, you know, goes through the layers of that. Again, really, just it's not therapy, it's not ferreting out, you know, how I was at five years old or, you know, going back in time like that, but very present moment. Sometimes these inquiries are impersonal kind of the nature of experience. 
one of the things I really saw in the metta practice as it deepened was how actually impersonal it was. I set the conditions going, and then the practice just kind of did itself, and these experiences unfolded. I wasn't in control. I wasn't setting the agenda. It was very impersonal, so we can have reflections like that. If doubts come up about the practice, that can be helpful. Again, very specific, not getting lost, not fueling the doubt, but really coming back to wise reflection about doubt, coming back to intention or refuge, bringing clarity to whatever it is that's up for you. And, uh, and, and just generally reflections on the phrases. Many, uh, we've had a few questions here in the hall in the groups, you know, how can I wish X when Y is the situation? You know, how can I wish someone to be happy when I know they're not happy or they won't ever be happy? Or that, you know, we don't imagine they can be happy or healthy and they're, they're ill, they're suffering in some way. Or the phrase of mudita, may your good fortune and uh, may your happiness and good fortune continue. May it increase and never wane. Well, if that's not going in the face of impermanence, I don't know what is. You know, how can we say that and really wish it when we know the truth of impermanence? I think we all need to wrestle with this and come up with our answer to that, because the wishes are so powerful. Yet there are many reasons why they seem almost ridiculous. How can we wish someone to be happy? The first noble truth says there is suffering, that suffering is part of being alive. How can we go on saying, may I be happy, may you be happy? For me, the power of these phrases and the resolution of this is, no matter what the circumstances, it's still my highest wish or aspiration for myself, for the other. Whatever state of contraction or illness or fear, I would wish them to be healthy. I would wish them to be happy. And it's that resolution or it's that willingness to continue to say the phrases that actually allows the practice to deepen. You know, the purification is the coming up of all of these objections to why this is not possible. And the metta practice, the power of it is to keep saying it no matter what, no matter what we view about the circumstances, the particulars. And so we learn that even though our sincere intention has to be to wish this for the other, whatever it is, we can't control, as you learned today or practice today with the equanimity practice, we can't control what happens. We can't, our wishes aren't necessarily going to make them happy. What it is going to affect and transform is our own hearts and minds. And so as much as we use the other and we, uh, the strength of our aspiration and wishes and, and, and metta or whatever for them, to really always come back to it's here that the transformation happens. It's here that it's important that we rest our attention and pay attention to. And as we stay willing to do that, as we, you know, all of the agitations of the first few days of what's this all about and who are they kidding and I don't know about this and, you know, this is kind of ridiculous and stupid. Hopefully that's died down a little by now. And the practice just starts to continue and you get moments where it connects, moments where you feel a meta feeling or feel a sense of kindness towards yourself. We start to tap into this meta energy 
It's not stable and static for any of us. I know that. It certainly isn't for me. But when it comes, really recognize it. Whatever form it takes, this feeling of kindness, of well-wishing, of connection, of empathy, you know, it could be quite an exalted blissful feeling. It's really important that we pay attention, that we don't get lost in thinking about it, that we don't um, try to hold on to it, try to grasp onto it, but really recognize it. And also look to see what are the conditions that supported this feeling arising. Again, this is where it really differs from metta practice. In metta, I mean, sorry, in vipassana practice, in vipassana it's like, let it go, nice feelings happen, great, wonderful, but let them go, they just arise and pass. He were like, oh, were you doing it for your benefactor? Do some more of that. Were you thinking these kind of thoughts about the benefactor? Think those kind of thoughts. Were you placing your attention in the body in this way? Continue to do that. It's really very different instructions. The challenge is, of course, to do that skillfully. It's not like, you know, if I put my tongue this way and I squint this way and I, you know, I was sitting like this and I remember, that's not it. Uh, you know, and we know that that's not going to work. But really this general just kind of intention and this knowing, this trust, this intuition that this, we can have this experience, we can know this experience of love, of openness, of acceptance. And of course, not just in practice, but in all life, you know, what James was talking about last night, to really recognize, know, and name these beautiful qualities of mind and heart when they're present. It's so important for us. And it was just lovely today. A number of you were talking about these experiences of just the heart opening in a, an unexpected way or a feeling of spacious acceptance to all of your categories of beings or all of your experience. Really beautiful. To, to feel that. And the practice is, let that in. Expand into that. Not contract around it. Not to say, you know, anicca, anicca, it'll pass. But really honor those experiences. Know them, name them, integrate them. Someone also said that James saying last night that uh, the possibility of being mindful of positive experiences when they happen, that was a revelation that we, you know, we should do that. People often associate mindfulness with suffering. And we're kind of on pain patrol where, you know, where's the next problem? Or if I'm angry, I should be mindful or fearful. But being mindful of joy, mindful of uh, ex- expansion, mindful of energy, we need to do this. This is really skillful to know, know and notice these positive states of mind. We, can, we not only learn from them, that this is actually the technique, the practice the Buddha said to increase and maintain and grow these beautiful states of mind by noticing them, by inhabiting them. Mary Oliver, the poet, is uh, such a great teacher of how to do this, her sense of aliveness when she's out in nature. You just, you can, she just conveys what that's like. And I just, I found a, a poem in one of her latest connections I really liked. It's called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It's what I was born for. To look to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, 
to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow grow wise with such teachings as these, the the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. O good scholar, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? We can all become the scholars of these beautiful experiences and grow wise if we notice them, if we if we open to them with interest and acceptance and actually let them, inhabit them, let them inhabit us. I know for myself that on this first long retreat that I did, you know, as I said, I went through that period of difficulty and then the practice kind of opened up and the concentration deepened and still, you know, was beautiful in, in subtle ways. It wasn't anything ecstatic. But as you do this practice, and we'll get a little taste of this tomorrow, but we don't have time. Obviously, I was on a six-week retreat to develop it. The way that you um, end this practice is to do metaphoral beings. We'll do it tomorrow. But it's in a very systematic way that's quite extensive. There's a list of 12 categories of beings. And if you've done the metta chant at night, we often do it on metta retreats, the end of that sutta, sabe, sata, sabe, panna, sabe, bhuta, in Pali, it's all beings, all living beings, all creatures, all individuals, all those in existence, and then all females, all males, all enlightened beings, all unenlightened beings, um, all, ha- all those in states of happiness, all humans, all those in states of woe. It's a list of 12. So you do metta for each of those, a kind of different ways of getting at all beings. And then you add the 10 directions. So a period of practice would be going through each one of those to all the 10 directions. And it would take me about an hour and a half to go through that. Very concentrating. But to keep steady, you know, at this point, all beings, it can get a little vague. I would make little vignettes for each one to just keep me connected, keep my heart open. It's like for all creatures to the north, polar bears and seals and, you know, to the east, I'd imagine I was in Massachusetts, Boston and the people there. And then to the west, my friends back in California. But to the southwest, I didn't really know anyone. But I remembered this time that Guy and I took a trip to... um, the southwest and went a lot through the Navajo lands down there, beautiful lands, and went into Canyon de Chez. You could only go a little way in without a guide. Beautiful canyon, but then we drove around it in various lookout points. You could look down into the canyon, and the upper reaches of the canyon are reserved for the Navajo. And when we stood on this lookout, we could see down there um, a hogan, a native uh, Navajo structure. And I saw a woman down there moving about very mindfully, slowly, obviously doing her chores outside her dwelling. It, it looked like she had native uh, traditional dress on, you know, long hair in braids. 
And she just really touched me in some way, just what she represented, her, her love of the land, her uh, connection with nature, her willingness to give up whatever there are of the um, comforts of this you know, modern culture and go back to that style of living. It, she just always stuck in my mind. So when I thought of the Southwest, she just popped up, this woman. And so every time I would be sending her metta, they all women in the Southwest, and she was all females in the Southwest, and she was my representative. Well, the next phrase is, may all males of the Southwest be uh, happy, etc. So I gave her a grandson. <laughs> and this, you know, this would all, ha- you know, I didn't think about this. It just happened. I gave her a grandson, and he would ride up on his motorbike, you know, a young kid in high school, and they would sit down and talk to each other. You know, I, I didn't make conversations up, but just, you know, I'd just bring them together. There'd just be these little vignettes as I went through the phrases. And one time as I was doing this, you know, I'd gotten to know them. I just would sit them there. It's like, ah. Oh. And the grandson said to the grandmother, I really missed you. You know, he comes every week or something. And she turned to him and said, I really missed you too. And there was something in that. I'm actually feeling it right now. It just cracked me wide open. There was such a sense of the possibility of love between two people. It just blew me apart. That was when I really knew what unconditional love was and metta was. Between these two people, one was imaginary, one I didn't know. It opened my heart. It was just so powerful to feel that. Transforming. I went on that high. I don't know how long it lasted, but it's interesting to see the development, the purification started to happen. As I basked in that, really bathed in that sense of unconditional love, what's the thoughts that started to happen was, I don't have that. I don't have that in my life. I certainly didn't have it when I was a child. And I went through this whole grief process around that. So it, again, it just totally opened me up by just being willing to keep going in the practice could never have planned that, have any expectation about that, but it was a really pivotal point in my practice, this coming together of these different conditions. So just through being steady with the practice, open to it when it happens, really live the love, as they say, if it's there, and it will open you in ways you can't really understand. But as I said, what enabled me to get to that place was that I felt the benefits of the concentration. If the meta feeling wasn't there or wasn't strong, that the concentration was developing. And it has its own energy that perhaps you've had a taste of um, in these days of practice. Again, it's really short. didn't have any expectations. But just a time when the phrases came really easily... There was a sense of flow, of continuity, that you didn't have to put that effort in anymore to make the practice happen. We use this practice to teach absorption states, concentration states known as excuse me, jhanas, jhana practice. And it's a whole um, spectrum, area of the practice that, again, takes longer than we have here to develop, but is a possibility for you if you're interested in doing it. And everyone can increase their concentration. Whatever, Wherever you're starting, I have a firm belief that we can all increase more than we have. We all have different aptitudes. Some people, it's just easy. For me, it was certainly wasn't easy. But because I was willing to 
give it long periods of time, I, I felt the benefits of it. But it's a powerful aspect of this practice and one that, again, can be unexpected but has great benefits, great rewards if, if we give it the time. And you may have noticed, as I said, this energy that comes when the practice seems effortless, the phrases are coming, there can be a physical or a felt energy in the body, a kind of rapture that happens, a rising up of energy as we, as the mind just collects around the phrases. This is actually um, a really helpful thing to have happen. So again, not to be afraid of the energies that come with practice, not to get attached to them. And again, it can be really problematic. We often say the worst thing that can happen to a meditator is have a good experience because we always want to have it back. We have to relate to these experiences wisely. Come together, temporary, they will fall apart. But when we're there, to actually understand the conditions that brought these um, experiences together... And wisely, wisely, not with grasping, wisely, see what we can do to reproduce them. You know, it's, it's attitudes of mind. It's, it's um, calm and ease in the body. It's letting go of distraction. These are the conditions that uh, come into uh, play when we're developing concentration. And so this energy that comes from the concentration can sometimes be a little alarming, but we can use it to continue deepening the practice. Don't be afraid of this energy. Of course, sometimes it can get a little out of balance, and please come and talk to us, talk to teachers about it. But mainly, it's possible to use it to keep the practice going. Again, when I did this first metro retreat, my previous retreat had been a three-month retreat where I'd really been plagued by a pain in my back. It must have been a pinched nerve or something, and it was often agony to go and sit. It was a big part of the retreat for a long period of time. But what was interesting is I'd go into the meditation hall kind of afraid that it would happen, and it just wouldn't happen, wouldn't be there. And then the next time there it was, I just didn't know. But I went on this next retreat. You know, I'd worked out and I'd done yoga and I was kind of prepared to deal with it. just wasn't there. The metta energy going through the body just released that contraction in some way that it just didn't happen. So this energy can be really helpful. The Buddha often talked about using this energy skillfully. Just as he talked about the wise use of thought, the skillful use of thought, thought, he talked about the wise use of these pleasant energies that can arise in meditation. And you probably know, um, some of you know the story of the Buddha's awakening, how he left a life of great privilege and went out and, and sought the great teachers of the day who taught jhana practices, taught these states of deep absorption. And he learnt them all up and down, became an expert. And his teacher said, you know, come sit beside me, teach with me. And he knew that just jhana alone wasn't the answer. So then he undertook these years of ascetic practices where he tortured the mind and body with these practices and then one day he realized, I've done everything. You know, no one has experienced more pain than me in, for the sake of their practice. And it hasn't done what I want it to do. It hasn't released my mind into true and complete freedom. And he, he had this thought. This, these are the Buddha's words. He said, he recalled a time when he was sitting under a rose apple tree. Uh, the... the so he doesn't give an age, but the sense is he's under 10. 
you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. It says, I recall once when my father the Sakyan was working, and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, then quite withdrawn from sensuality, quite withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization that is the path to awakening. I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. But it is not easy to achieve that pleasure with a body so extremely emaciated. Suppose I were to take some solid food, some rice and porridge. So out of that extreme practice, he realized that wasn't the way. Mortification of the body wasn't the way. But this... This pleasure, this contentment, this ease, that was the doorway to awakening. He took some food, he sat down under the Bodhi tree, and that was the night of his awakening. So his teachings, his practice from then on was this middle path. It wasn't afraid of pleasure when pleasure was used wisely. Not sensual pleasures of indulgence, but this pleasure that comes from a mind that's contented a mind that's at ease, the mind that's full of well-wishing, full of peace and harmony. This is what we too can experience. And so even though, you know, the Buddha's teaching is often shorthand is the Four Noble Truths, there's suffering in life. He never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. He talked more, uh, just as much about happiness and joy and pleasure as he did about suffering. Because they're important, as, he, as you see from his, his own practice, really important parts of the teaching, really important parts of the unfolding. It's necessary for us to know and cultivate these states of joy and pleasure in our practice, to not be afraid of them. So it's not when something comes up, oh, it's like, don't get attached, don't get attached. Yeah, we don't want to get attached, but we need to experience it. We need to know it. We need to understand it. As the practice deepens, as the meta feeling um, tends to stabilize, the meta phrases stabilize, the concentration develops, these five faculties of mind get developed. They actually get developed in any practice that you do that has some continuity to it, but particularly in practices that deepen concentration, these five what we call jhanic factors get developed. And I want to talk just a little briefly about each one. When these five factors develop and come together, they actually form the jhana experience, so they're a very integral part. But each of us knows these factors already. You're already cultivating them. The first two of these factors are called vitaka and vichara, sustain, aiming and sustaining. They're these qualities of mind that we do again and again in meditation when we bring our mind back to the phrases and st- stay there for the con- continuation of that phrase. That's aiming and sustaining, vitaka and vichara. Being willing to do that over and over again is the breadbasket, the foundation, the engine of our practice. To do it with lightness, 
with a sense of freshness and beginner's mind, if we can do that, that is what enables the practice to unfold. And these are the only two factors that we have any real control over. We don't have complete complete control over them, but any semblance of control, that willingness just to come back again and then sustain. This is Vitaka and Vichara, the cornerstone, the foundation stone of our practice. Once we start doing that, and you were doing that, you're still doing it, coming back again and again, the practice starts to roll a little bit. Then this third factor can be developed, and that is the factor of pity, rapture. Often it's the first energetic or concentration factor that people notice. Many of you have probably already had this. However you've experienced just a sense of absorption, a sense of energy in the body, maybe a little bit of uplift. It's a, it's a factor that can develop quite easily in um, this, this type of p- practice. The Pali word is pity. We usually translate it as rapture or joy. Um, it's ha- it, it can happen when we basically fall in love with our meditation object. And again, this is part of the necessary relationship. We can't force the vitaka and vichara through sheer will. We have to in some way fall in love with our object. When we're doing breath meditation, this can be a little challenging. The breath is not inherently lovable. It's fairly neutral. But that's why metta is such a good concentration object because there's so much to fall in love with. We are falling in love all the time with the phrases, with the concept of happiness, with our benefactor, with the neutral person even. So... This is why metta can be good for concentration because we do fall in love. Even if it's falling in friendliness or falling in acceptance, whatever it is that keeps us coming back allows this quality of pity to develop and and, and we just have a sense of ease in the practice. There's not a lot of resistance. The classic definitions of pity are a kind of energetic. Even though it's a mental quality, it's often felt in the body. And there's things like showering pity and uplifting pity and lightning kind of pity, uh, different movements in the body. But we can also know pity through things like um, involuntary movements that happen or a sense of uplifting. People often uh, have lights appear with your eyes closed, different forms of lights. These are all manifestations of pity and signs that the practice is deepening. It's important to realize, though, that you don't have to have these signs for the practice to deepen. And the fact that you've had them once and they're not there today doesn't mean you've lost the practice. You know, again, you have to relate wisely. They're, They're just temporary arisings out of causes and conditions. So not to get attached. We, we look to see, you know, if there are things that we're doing that we can do with a sense of graciousness and ease to support them, then we can do that. But it has to be done with such graciousness, such um, willingness to let it be the way it is. It'll be there sometimes and not others. We can often feel, especially in concentration practice, oh no, I blew it, it's all fallen apart, it's gone to hell in a handbasket. It's just the nature of the practice. Conditions come together. We can't control them all. We can just create the intention and sometimes beautifully come together, the meta feeling, the rapture or whatever. At other times, it's not like that. Our willingness to be okay with that is what will enable the practice to continue. 
Now, the interesting thing about rapture is when you, I mean, just the word we use, sometimes I actually like the terms or definitions um, joyful interest or zestful interest. More, It's more related around this collectedness of mind around the object. The first time you hear it, or even if you know it, it's always like, yeah, that's what I want. You know, give me some rapture. You know, I want, who cannot want this rapture? It sounds great. But it's actually a coarse kind of energy. And for many people, they can experience it, and it's like, oh, great, I've got it. And then the second day, they're like, you know, where's the off switch to this? Because it can be very um, challenging, the body and mind, to have this energy. And after a while, it can seem kind of coarse. Well, it's interesting, the next factor in this developmental path of the jhanic factors is sukha, opposite of dukkha. And out of the energy of rapture, we've gotten absorbed in our object, the practice becomes somewhat effortless. When the energy um, uh, gets a little more sedate, a little more um, sublime, a little more, we've, we've kind of... It's, it's worked its way through our body in some way. Who knows how it works? It's kind of mysterious. But as it subsides a little, what's left is this, the joyful part of the rapture without the, the coarse energy. And this is sukha, happy contentment of mind and body. It's usually translated as happiness or pleasure, sweetness. It's a very sweet kind of feeling. And it's, I mean, this is something you might have already experienced because metta, when we feel it, has a sweetness to it. Metta is sukha. Sukha is metta. It is that kind of kindness. And it can be a real relief after the rapture to have this subsiding into the sukha, this sweetness that brings a little smile to our face and is a great support for practice. And again not to get attached, not to look, how can I get more of that? I remember the first time I had this strong experience of sukha. My, I remember my experience was it was like being, you know, one of those long strands of kelp. They're really like really long and they kind of sway in the ocean. I felt like a long strand of kelp floating in a sea of warm honey. It just had this sweetness and softness. And my, my thought was, that's what I'd be missing in my practice. I need more sukha. It's totally clear. And, you know, may sukha arise. You know, how do I get sukha? It's like sukha, sukha. You know, it doesn't work that way. Again, we have to be where we are. These things come out of conditions. They, they have a, pl- a part to play in our practice. We can't control them. But when they're there, let them be there. You know, really inhabit them. Let them suffuse the practice. Notice that sweetness. It might just be subtle. The subtlest, you know, I saw when I did the mudita practice and people thought of their happy person, there were just these little smiles in the room. It was so sweet to see. Let yourself feel that. This is a beautiful part of the practice. Let, let it be there. Let Notice it. The last of the factors Again, there's this trajectory. I don't know if you kind of feel. I always feel there's like this trajectory where we start the foundation. Pity is kind of this high energy. Sukha sub- subsides a little. The last is ekagata, one-pointedness. It's almost synonymous for um, equanimity and concentration. It's where the the, um, the we've used the rapture to get concentrated. It subsided a little into the sukha, and then the sukha subsides, and there's just this clarity. There's this connection. There's this one-pointedness around the object. But it's not narrow. 
This one-pointedness isn't a focus. The meta field, the meta object can be vast, can be all beings, and we can have ekagata around that. The mind can be c- collected, stable, unified around that. So this is really the, the doorway into the further absorptions, this collection of mind. It's this refinement. Tomato, though, called Anjat Tomato, instead of being a narrow, he said it's the one point that includes everything. So it's, it's really being fully in the moment with this sense of connection. Nothing needed to be added, nothing taken away. The mind just resting. When these factors come into balance, this is what has the potential to open to jhana and the deepening of these factors, the deepening the jhanas happens over time. It's a very natural development. We don't, we can't force it. We can't push towards it. But it, and it takes time. It can take weeks to develop. So again, don't use this to judge your practice. To think you should be having this. I just wanted to give a sense of the possibilities of this practice and how deep it can go, how profound it can be. And I know that all of you have touched somewhere or other something that I've talked about tonight. Just use this as a, as a sense of possibility, not to judge or evaluate. Where, wherever we are in our practice, to really inhabit that place, to, to be connected to it, appreciative of it, Uh, feel the blessings of it, and know, again, it's just a doorway that's opening to more and more possibilities. But only if we start or live, act, practice from this place of acceptance. This is where we are. And from that place, from that opening, then the practice can grow. Out of vitaka and vichara, the foundations of our practice, aiming and sustaining, just connecting again and again with interest, with intention, and with kindness. So wh- wherever you connected with anything I've said, you know, if it was helpful, please use it. If not, but just to honor that this practice has depths that we don't know yet, has, has unexpected gifts that we can't plan for or try to grasp. We just have to be wherever we are and learn from every aspect of the practice, the beautiful and delightful and lovely experiences of mind and body and heart and the really challenging ones, the difficulties and the obstacles. It's only by being willing to understand and be mindful of, bring our practice to both, that this metta will keep deepening. And so we continue the practice. We continue by learning to trust ourselves, trust our capacity to do this practice. You have done it, you are doing it, you can do it. To trust the practice, to really know that this practice works. Whatever taste of it you've had, whatever challenges you've had, it's working its mysterious way. And to trust love, to trust the potential, the power of love, to heal and open our hearts and take us on this journey towards more freedom and awakening. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over again in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? your attention. Time now to enjoy beautiful night air, some walking, and then we'll come back for our last sit and chanting.